Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, your host and president of Morton Group, LLC, a national consulting firm based in Chicago. Imagine the 1960s fight for equality without a change is going to come. Lift every voice. We shall overcome and other iconic protests and march songs that served as the pulse of the civil rights movement. Think about a world where larger communities didn't have the opportunity to empathize with the LGBTQ plus experiences in the Laramie Project, Rent, and Angels in America, or Black experiences in A Raisin in the Sun, American Sun, and August Wilson's Century Cycle. In more ways than just raising awareness, the arts have always been a tool for people to build and sustain communities around shared values, around important issues, and inspire those communities to take action. And just a few years ago, we got a first-hand view of what would happen if it all disappeared. While the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted sectors worldwide, the arts were severely devastated. Despite efforts to make virtual content and engage communities online, only a fortunate few have reopened their doors since. In fact, according to the National Endowment for the Arts, arts and cultural production fell by 6.4% when adjusted for inflation compared with a 3.4% decline in the overall economy. For this episode of Gathering Ground, I was excited to sit down with two people who, in spite of the pandemic, continue to make sure that the arts and activism can thrive together through their work and advocacy efforts. Our first guest, Carla Estella Rivera, is a storyteller, writer, theater practitioner, change maker, and the executive director of Arts Administrators of Color Network a national nonprofit advocating for people of color as artists and arts administrators through collaboration and community building and the creation of opportunities for better representation in the arts community. Carla is a company member of Second Story Chicago and her past roles include executive director of Free Street Theater, director of public affairs at Ingenuity, and director of communications at Aspira of Illinois. We talked about the network and what it does, her time at Free Street during the pandemic, and how she managed to make sure the theater's vital work continued in its communities. And our second guest is Shannon Downey. Shannon and I met years ago when we were working on a web series called The Agenda, formerly known as The Gay Agenda, which you might be able to find even now on YouTube. Shannon's work in craftivism has earned her national recognition, particularly Rita's Quilt which landed her a spot on the Kelly Clarkson Show. Prior to becoming a full-time craftivist, Shannon founded and ran Pivotal Productions, LLC. She served as Asian Americans Advancing Justice, Chicago's Director of Development, and is currently a teaching artist at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, as well as being on faculty at Columbia College, Chicago. Shannon tells us about her RV trip around the country, what it was like to meet Kelly Clarkson, and how she joined communities from coast to coast to complete Rita's Quilt. Hi, so happy you're here. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Mayor. So let's just start by making some, um, what is it, a disclosure <laughs> about previous uh, knowledge of, of, of the guest. Um, Shannon and I have worked together on numerous projects, including a web series called First the Gay Agenda, and then it uh, changed to The Agenda. And we've also tap danced together, uh, <laughs> which was a lot True of fun. True story. <laughs> and um, Carla, of course, is heralded, I would say, in the arts community. 
um, for her work. And of course, at Free Street Theater, one of my favorite uh, organizations, and now as the arts administrator um, of Color Network. And so uh, we're going to get into all that today and so much more. So I want to start with you, Carla. Tell us about how you got here. Um, how did you get to your current role? Uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, even. Yeah. So I was born in Mayagüez, Puerto Rico, and I came to Chicago as a child. And I am um, grew up here most of my life, CPS graduate, uh, went to Columbia College for film school, um, spent some time on the East Coast, but uh, where I went to NYU for a little bit and then... Um, started as a teaching artist in Vermont and New Hampshire of all places. Um, I loved the work that I was doing there. I was a teaching artist, teaching playwriting to fifth and sixth graders in schools across both States. But I said to myself, you know, this is work that I really feel like I should be doing back home with my own communities. And so I came back to Chicago and, um, and from there, I continued my teaching artist work, um, but the arts economy is is not the greatest uh, at present. And by trade, I'm a playwright, um, screenwriter, uh, performer, storyteller, and, and I do have a degree in film, but haven't really been on set in a really long time. Um, so um, when I became pregnant with my, with my child, Frida, uh, I was like, oh, now I really got to make money. Now, now I've got to think about stability and I can't be on people's couches and, um, and, you know, I can't hustle in the ways that, you know, you normally would if you don't have as many responsibilities, particularly a whole other life. So I'm the child of a single parent, a single mom, social worker. Um, and I was also raised with a father in my life who's my uncle who taught sociology at Northeastern Illinois University. So social justice and movement work and, racial justice had always been a part of my life um, and community service had always been a part of my life. So I lived this double life for many years, one where I never wanted to give up uh, art making, um, but I had to make a living. And so I worked in nonprofit organizations. I started at Instituto del Progreso Latino uh, down in Pilsen Little Village. Uh, I worked at Aspira of Illinois. Um, and ultimately from there, um, always trying to parlay my artistic life and try to merge the two <laughs> in some way. Um, I ended up doing uh, policy work at Ingenuity uh, here in Chicago that focused on arts education, which is a passion of mine. Um, and then from there, uh, became the executive director of Free Street Theater, which was my artistic home and had been for over a decade. And, um, and there I really cut my teeth as an ED, became, became the ED in October of 2019. And then we all know what happened in 2020. Um, and so um, arts administrators of color had always been a through line for me. Um, it's not necessarily uh, super well known in a lot of circles across the sector, but um, I am the first ever um, paid executive director of the organization. And um, I'm so excited to kind of do this work sector-wide for our communities and BIPOC folks. And as we say, people of the global majority. Yes, absolutely. 
Well, you you came to an organization that was still fairly new. I mean, it was 2014, 2016, 2016, 2016. So it's fairly new. And why did that organization happen? So it it uh, existed for a while without any staff. Just tell us a little bit about that before we check in with Shannon. So AAC was uh, founded um, and started by two black women, uh, Ariel Davis and Kwanis Floyd. Uh, who were both working in uh, the art sector in the DMV area, so D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. And they found themselves in a lot of meetings with people who were making big decisions about uh, BIPOC communities across the country, but they were often the only two people of color in the room. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so they were familiar. like, mm, that sounds familiar. Is, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So they became friends. And of course, we are abundant across the country within this work, but quite frankly, we're often siloed either because we're in predominantly white institutions or we are marginalized as, you know, as, as organizations of color. And so what started as them two together became informal happy hours, became dinners and then became the formation of AAC. And for six years, it was board run and led um, for free um, through that time. Uh, Not only uh, did they continue to host these affinity spaces and networking groups, but also um, during COVID had a COVID relief fund where they they gave out um, thousands of micro grants uh, to individuals across the country, uh, held an annual convening uh, where folks uh, from across the country came to gather and network and learn from each other and resource share, um, had mentoring programs and, and other things. And so these were all folks that had their own full-time jobs in the sector, in other organizations, and, and were continuing to do this work. This got the attention of Mackenzie Scott, and we were awarded a million dollars from uh, from Mackenzie Scott, which then afforded a strategic planning process, and then ultimately hiring me. What a story! Oh my goodness, that's incredible. Nice. That that's been a lot of good done with that uh, Mackenzie Scott money. Just gonna say, yes. lots of organizations here in Chicago have benefited from it. That's wonderful. Absolutely. All right. And you started in November of 22, right? Uh, or September. Was it September? September, September of 22. 22. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, let's, let's, let's just make a little shift here and hear Shannon's story. Shannon, um, how did, how did you get to where you are? <laughs> I know um, you were born. <laughs> it was a long and winding path. Yeah. And of course I want the, the, you know, the, the cliff notes version. Yeah, obviously. Um, I pr- I promise you do not want the extended version. Um, I I really feel like it's just uh, I've always been a creative and I've always always been a community builder, and so those are the two themes that like sort of run through. Um, I would I guess I'd add an educator as well. So those are the three themes then that run through. So for a while, ten years, it looked like running a. A marketing company that was focused on nonprofits and um, social enterprises. And then it was director of development for Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago. And then it was off on my own in this weird world of craftivism, um, which is really something that I use to recruit 
burgeoning activists and sort of move them along their path um, into fully fledged activists. Well, let's stop for one moment. You you, you did move (laughs) that story along very nicely. Um, However, I think it's important to note that you had made the choice to essentially give up your life in Chicago, hit the road, and then COVID hit and you decided to do it anyway. Yeah. So in 2019, um, I had decided that I was at a tipping point and I felt like I could do the most good in the world if I went full on art activist, like full time. Um, And I felt like I could at that point. Um, So I spent a year planning and I was, you know, I kept being asked by all these places all over the country, will you come here and do some work with our community? Will you come here and do some work with our community? And I, I you know, could only do a handful of those because I had both a full-time job and I uh, teach at Columbia College. Hey. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to do this, but how do I do it in a way that like makes any sense to being a full-time artist um, and art activist? So I decided I would sell everything I owned, I would buy an RV, I would move into it, and then I would travel the country on what was going to be a one-year tour, where I was going to go to all the places and do all the community work, and it was going to be amazing, and I had a map, and I had a schedule, and I had 150 events planned, and it was going to be epic, Uh, and then right as I had given up my job, hired my replacement, um, sold everything I owned, gave up my apartment and bought the RV. It was March of 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, no. Not good. so like, uh, like, what do you even do? Um, well, you go, you, you continue forward yeah, so, apparently. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, it was too late. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I just live in an RV now. Cool. That was not the plan. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, it, it, for me, it was probably best that it, played out that way because one, I had no understanding of how little I knew about how one lives in an RV and like just lives, like merely exists. Um, And the pacing and the schedule that I had built probably would have been bonkers. I probably would have hated everything. Um, And so I was forced to pivot. I was forced to rethink and be flexible and, and try to come up with solutions. And as a result, I did. Um, And it was kind of magical. I mean, like one of the things a lot of people don't know is at the beginning of the pandemic, all the RV parks were closed too. So not only did I live in an RV with no business living in an RV, cause I had no idea how, um, all of the places where I was going to put the RV and learn how to live in an RV were closed. So then I was like, I don't even have anywhere to like, where do I even park this thing? Like I can't live in Walmart parking lots. Because people probably <laughs> don't know that you can't just leave an RV anywhere. You no. can't. Um, and, you know, I was traveling alone and like yes, there are real safety issues nervous. there. made me very nervous. made me very nervous. I know, Mary. Yeah. I love you for that. <laughs> uh, my parents too, don't worry. <laughs> I don't think they slept. <laughs> but, um, you know, what I ended up doing was just sort of put, putting a call out to my digital community and being like, yo, if you have a driveway that's kind of flat and a plug, like, and you'll host me, please. And then like 3,000 people signed up from every state in the country. And so I got to literally driveway hop for the first year and a half. Um, and so what what could have been really isolating ended up being this like really beautiful community uh, experience. And then one year became two years because halfway through 
like at a, the year and a half mark, I was like, oh, it's starting to become what it's supposed to be. Like I'm, I'm going into places, I'm doing the work that I envisioned. Um, and then right at the two year mark, I said to my mom, I think I have one more year in me because now it's really starting to like, to, to feel like it's supposed to feel. And then I got hit by a drunk driver and he totaled my RV and I lost everything. <laughs> I was like, that's cool. Guess I was done. Uh, so that's how I landed in Massachusetts for a year. You walked away from that accident and that is important to note. It is. Nobody got hurt, which was kind of a miracle because he definitely should have been dead after like you saw what happened to his vehicle. So it was definitely a, a miracle that we, we all walked away um, unscathed. But so here I am in Massachusetts and I'm finishing up a book. Uh, so that's We're going to come back and talk about that. Great. I want to hear more about it. Great. Lovely. <laughs> so let's let's just open this up, though. And, and I'd like to hear from both of you about the state of the arts community. What what do you think are some of the the pressing issues and, and the priorities from where you sit? Right. Because you're all you know, you're both sort of on this continuum in terms of arts um, activism and Carla, when you said that you went to school for film, I, I, my, you know, degree is in radio and television, and I was going to be a filmmaker. Uh, but as you probably know, documentary filmmaking, eh, you know, <laughs> doesn't pay a ton, and you really got to commit to it in a particular way. And so I started a consulting business to support my film, you know, my filmmaking. Didn't quite work out. Uh, so, so tell me though, what do you think? Let's just start with you. What do you think are some of the pressing issues. Just, you know, let's talk about one or two of them. Um, and then we'll, we'll hear from Shannon because you all are in different parts of the art scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say, um, there's so much, what an onion to peel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you what some of the, like kind of the most prevalent things that I'm seeing, particularly in my work right now and what I call this first year, is truly a year of kind of deep learning and deep connection and learning what's happening across the country because there are some universal truths um, to what arts administrators and artists of color are going through across the country, but regionally and community-wise, there's certainly nuances. Uh, but I would say, you know, across the board, um, to me, there has to be a really great reimagining of how we're truly doing this work. Um, you know, wage equity is kind of a t on top of that, um, which is not, um, that's not mutually exclusive to um, artists and arts administrators of color. I think that's across the entire board. Absolutely. Um, you know, mm -hmm. at Free Street, it was just really funny because at Free Street, we were an under 500K organization with um, a very small cash reserve. And, um, and, you know, and, and I'm sure you've heard this, um, the statistic where the average non-equity, non-union performer mm -hmm. in the city of Chicago makes under $2 an hour, mm. right? And so in 2019, uh, Free Street started uh, paying artists $15 an hour as a base rate. And we continued that. Um, and throughout the pandemic, we hired over 300 artists to do projects. Really? Yeah. That is unbelievable. And how did you maintain that level of, of support for artists? Well, part of it was that we were getting a lot of relief dollars. 
mm-hmm. and a lot of okay. unrestricted dollars. Yeah, which are the best kinds of dollars. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> it was like, hey, look, you know, the world is burning down. We want you to have this money. Do what you need to do to take care of your organization and your people. And that's exactly what we did. And, and so we, you know, grew our organization and our team, our staff, but then also were able to pivot to digital uh, plays and to other things and hire more artists because of that. And so, um, and it blew my mind because we had all of these other organizations with a whole lot more money and endowments who were like, how do we do this thing? And we're like, for real? <laughs> That's often the way it is. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, so one is that, um, you know, and, and, and I had a colleague who was saying that there are still boards and commissions and all of these folks who don't really prioritize wage equity because our work, you know, because this is our vocation and because we are, you know, it is based and rooted in a passion for the work. So, so you should not be equitably, equitably, um, compensated. Yeah, for like they're they're going to do it anyway, you know. And mm. it's like, no, friends. Um, in fact, I want you know. I always say, how many stories, and how many um, incredible works are we losing exponentially because they have to leave the sector to to get other jobs because of the lack of wage equity. So I think that across the board is is a thing. Um, and I would say more specifically, you know, in the work that I'm doing at AAC, um, it is that, um, you know, it is, is well-meaning white folks who are getting in our way and just kind of continuing. Like there, there are the people who clearly don't want us in their spaces and that's very cut and dry and clear, but then there are the people who, um, claim to be and 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 you know and and you know have written those beautiful solidarity statements in the way oh don't get me started on those (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and 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 i'm seeing a great rollback funder we're seeing it too we're seeing it too i mean i mean if i can just interject here and say that we do a lot of course racial equity access diversity and inclusion work and we do executive searches And um, it used to be that we had literally had clients that were just waiting to work with us. And probably earlier in the year um, or last year, we saw the data from um, an NPR podcast that clearly indicates it's Code Switch. That's the podcast that all those billions of dollars that were pledged to work on equity, um, all of the beautiful statements, heartfelt statements that were written have gone nowhere. And in fact, there's less interest in anything around equity, Black Lives Matter, than there was even prior to uh, the uh, murder of George Floyd. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're seeing, um, yeah, so we're seeing folks not meeting the promise, uh, but still claiming to be down. And so, and, and they are, I would posit that they are worse than the people who are straight up saying, we don't want you here. And, and, and I would prefer that, right? Yeah. We just want to know exactly where you are. That's how we feel, you know, when we go in for, you know, work with an organization, just tell us exactly where you are. Don't pretend we don't want to check boxes. That's not how we do this work. Right. And so to your point, just tell us where you are. And so we, we can move from there. Exactly. 
And, you know, and then there's, you know, there's, and then when we're calling it out and they say that they're down and they want to continue and we say, look, you know, there are these um, characteristics of white supremacy that you are upholding, then all of a sudden they're like, oh, so you're calling me a white supremacist. I said, no, friend, you do not have to be a card carrying member of a hate group in order to perpetuate white supremacy because that has been ingrained in us. In all of us, every single one of us. Facts. That's right. And yeah. so, so that, so, so we've got um, those challenges within our sector. Um, it is, it is the people who are against us. It is the well-meaning folk that don't want to step aside, um, and reimagine their role. Right. Because it's right. not about, you know, I think we, I remember Kwanis Floyd and I had, we were at our, uh, convening, having a conversation and somebody, uh, we were, we were also live on zoom and somebody said something about us taking it all over. Right. And it's not about us you know, supplanting all white people in all of the places. But it is to say, if you purport yourself to be an organization that wants to be based in racial equity and you don't have those very communities leading the, you know, the charge and telling you what we need and right. being in those seats of power, right. then you're never going to get there. And it's all lip service. And exactly. So that is, that is a big part of it. And then on top of that, then is the, is also the rollback of the funding. Absolutely. Things have started to go back, right, to as they were before, uh, and in some cases with funders. Um, some of the, the protocols and rapid response um, initiatives that were put into place are gone. And so we now know, though, that if money could be distributed that quickly before, right, it could, it could happen that way now. And so that's something that I know folks are continuing to talk to their funders about. Shannon, from where you are sitting um, and, and doing your your arts work. Um, let's talk about it sort of um, in terms of what it actually is. I don't think we said that it's cross-stitching that you've been doing. Tell, tell us why cross-stitching um, and before we talk about some of the issues you've come across as an artist doing this kind of work. So it, the medium that I use predominantly to connect with people and bring people in is embroidery and um, other fiber arts. And then sometimes it extends to wheat pasting and zines, you know, we're just sort of all the mediums that I work in basically. Um, and it really is a, like a community development tool. It's like the trick, how I get people into a room with me. I'm like, oh, we're going to make art. It's going to be so much fun. And then they show up and and it is, and we have so much fun, but at the same time, um, I'm using the, this, that space and that community and those people, um, you know, to facilitate and, and engage them in conversation around the things that you're never supposed to talk to strangers about basically. And some like reproductive rights. Yep. I mean, literally everything. Um, yes, and yes. so sometimes that looks like, an organic and natural conversation that arises based on who's in the room and what they're inspired to make around, right? So the, the prompt is usually inviting them to make around something that they care passionately about in the world. Um, so really trying to hone them in on issues of social uh, injustice. And then um, sometimes it's thematic. So we are coming together to talk about gun violence and to make art around this, you know, and, and to let the art drive the conversation. Um, so that's really like what it is. And then, you know, of course, I'm an, I'm an artist on my own um, and make a lot of um, always political art. 
Excellent. All right. You know what? We're going to take a short break right here um, and we'll come back. And when we come back, we're going to hear some more fabulous stories. In fact, we're going to ask Shannon to tell us about her time on the Kelly Clarkson show. Yes, we're going to, we are going to talk about that, whether you want to or not. (laughs) You're listening to Gathering Ground and we're back in a moment. everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back, everyone, to this episode of Gathering Ground on Arts and Activism. And our guests today, Shannon Downey and Carla Estella Rivera. So we wanted to pick up, we're going to start with you, Shannon, because you have a, I'm sure, very interesting story you can share with us around your time on the Kelly Clarkson show. I remember seeing this on your Instagram and I'm like, what? Uh, So there was a particular project that you were working on that got a lot of interest. So just tell us a little bit about that story and, and, and Kelly Clarkson. Yeah, that was sort of a wild one. I just, um, I came across an unfinished uh, quilt embroidery project and an estate sale that I was at. Um, and I started to sort of learn about the person who had just passed and and the project, you know, all the, it was all set up to go and it's like, she never got started on it. And I was like, oh God, I totally have to finish this, don't I, in honor of this person and all the people, you know, I really looked at it as like an honoring of sort of all of our elders and ancestors who have been in the textile art world, creating amazing things for throughout time and never being recognized as artists. Um, and so I thought, okay, I can do this. This is going to be great. And then I, I, you know, I don't quilt. So that was a challenge. Um, and then I opened, you know, the box and was sort of like, this will take the rest of my life. If I do this by myself, I can't. So I went to Instagram and I said, hey, Insta, here's the story. Does anybody want to help me out a little bit with this? Thinking like if I could get a handful of people, it would move a lot faster. And within 24 hours, I had over a thousand volunteers of people, not just like, oh yeah, I'll help. But like, you better pick me. (laughs) I was like, okay. So in the end, 150 people worked on this quilt. Hold on a second. How did you get to 150 from a thousand? Well, there were only like so many jobs that I could, you know, it's only so big. So um, all of the hexagons that comprise the quilt, there are a hundred. Each one was sent out to a different person across the country. And their job was to hand embroider that section and send it back to me. And then all of the hand sewers and quilters got together to piece the whole thing and then long arm it and bind it and turn it into this amazing quilt, which we were able to do in three months, which is a monster. Um, So in that period of time, while this is happening, you know, we're sharing on Instagram and across social and and people are really connecting to it. Um, And I think because so many women are so used to being told that this is not art, that their things are not valuable, that when they die, their stuff's just going to be sold off in an estate sale for $5. Um, And so folks were just really rethinking how 
um, these art objects in their life that have been handed down to them by their ancestors and elders, like like what those meant and how much work and artistry went into them. And it was it was really fascinating to see how it it shifted people's thinking. Um, and then, of course, every press outlet on the planet wanted in because it was 2016. So nobody has hope. It was right before Christmas. So there's like, you know, that seasonal nonsense. And then, you know, so all the press is coming and I'm talking about how this is a radical feminist act and that this is like the like the meaning behind it and the conversations happening around it. And um, they're like, yeah, these nice these nice people are finishing a dead ladies quilt every single time. Didn't matter what I said, Um, but that's how I ended up on the Kelly Clarkson show in order. uh, But she did a beautiful job of really like telling the story and, and honoring the work and showcasing it. And and absolutely. It was wonderful to see uh, you and and the project uh, getting national attention in that way. Thanks. It's kind of the gift I would think that keeps on giving. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was interesting in that it brought a lot of people who would never, ever, ever come to my work, to my work. And they had this idea of me as this like, you know, like, I don't know what they thought. They just had this idea of me and they had already fallen in love with me and the project. And when they got to my work, they were like, what, what is this like wildly feminist, super political, like, like everything that you represent confuses me because, you know, I'm a nice white lady quilter from Tennessee who's been quilting for 80 years, you know, Mm -hmm. but they couldn't unlove me because all they could remember was this quill. And so to their credit, so many of them have stuck around with me and like participated in some of these conversations that make them totally uncomfortable. And I, I see, I can see movement. And it, mm-hmm. so it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, a little bit of a miracle. It's wonderful. It's Yeah, it's really pretty incredible. Carla, when you think about your sort of body of work and, and the different organizations you've been in, what would be your favorite arts project if you had to look back on that? What, what really had an impact on you, an impact on others in a way that was somewhat unique. Is there a project that comes to mind when you think about that? This is, of course, a question that I'm just throwing at you right now that I didn't tell yeah. you I was going to ask you. So, <laughs> I actually have two. I actually have uh-huh. two. Um, one is this first project that um, we at Free Street got off the ground very quickly at the height of the pandemic. And so um, I'll give you a little bit of background to that. Um, so we were about to open a live show in May, uh, our youth show, uh, Wasted, uh, which was about environmental justice in Chicago. And our young people had been rehearsing forever. Uh, Katrina Dion, who at the time was the director of education, uh, is now, I think, the producing artistic director, if I'm getting that correct. If I'm not, I'm sorry. But, uh, under her direction, made this pivot to create and partner with filmmakers to do a digital play, which meant buying these filming kits that had to be meticulously um, sanitized every time, dropped off at young people's homes, um, and then taken to, you know, cleaned again, and then taken to another young person's home. They had to learn how to make in their own you know, in their own spaces 
and then it was edited together to to make a really impactful and beautiful and still a very free street kind of a piece and um and it was beautiful it was so hard to make and it was such a laborious lift particularly for Katrina and the production staff and and certainly there was a lot of health risk involved because this was also pre-vaccine um so um it was it it to me that piece is probably still um I I still watch it and it's still applicable. It's so special and to me so very emotional. Um and 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 it is also just a testament to the fact that um when there is a will, we can certainly pivot to make some some things happen if we need to. Absolutely. Um and and so I love that. And the other project that I love is a personal project of mine, which um, was stalled during the pandemic. So in the fall of 2019, I also, um, myself and two other artists, a choreographer, uh, Amy Hall Garner, and an illustrator, Elisa Chavari, were brought together um, by Erica Edwards, who at the time was the director of community engagement at the Joffrey Ballet. And we pitched... Uh, what would be the Joffrey's first ever young audience's piece called Redefines Home. And we pitched that in September of 2019 and everybody loved it. We were moving forward. It was going to be great. We were going to, it was going to come out in 2020. Wasn't 2020 going to be the year? <laughs> it really was. <laughs> so many things. So many things were planned. That is absolutely the case. That's right. Oh, what a break in the space-time continuum. Oh my goodness. <laughs> But um, so, and, and for that whole time, you know, 2020, 2021, you know, they were like, you know, we're going to make it happen. I don't believe anything's going to happen until I sign on the dotted line, right? Give me a contract. We'll make this happen. Um, but uh, all of the waiting, all of this time, you know, they, the Doffrey team stayed engaged with us, you know, uh, my agent and every, you know, all of that, all the negotiations came through. And on my birthday of 2021, I signed my contract and, um, it was, it's a co-production with the Miami city ballet. And it is, um, a love letter to Puerto Rico. And it is a love letter to, um, environmental refugees from hurricanes like uh, hurricane Maria, for example. And it's about a young girl who, you know, lives in the Island and dreamed of being in the big city, um, and this hurricane displaces her family and she has to figure out um, how to reimagine what home is and find who her people are in, you know, in this new environment. And it, uh, it opened this past summer, uh, Navy Pier, and is now, um, it, it just ended a run in Miami, over 4,000 families uh, young people and their families saw it in Miami-Dade County. Most of them, if you know the demographics in Miami, uh, 90% of the folks who were born, uh, who were, who live in Miami were not born in the United States. Lots of Caribbean love there. And so um, culturally affirming work is so important to me. And so to know that I was able to write a piece and, and, and it was an all women of color team um, to know that that young people were able to see themselves in that process. And, you know, one of the dancers there is from Cuba and he says, I danced this ballet the way that I did because I lived it. 
and I was like, you know, um, it, 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 um, it, it affirmed for me that I, I still got it <laughs> as an artist, but also, um, it just, it, it was, it was an honor and, and it, um, and I'm so happy that it came to life. What an incredible story. And so it's, it lives on. Yes. It's coming back to Chicago. Uh, it'll be in the parks um, over the summer. And, um, and so we're, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to see where, where Rita can go. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm, you know, this is not the last stop. I hope. Wonderful. That's very exciting. You know, as we um, get ready to wrap up in, in a little bit, I'd love for you to give any advice that you would have to listeners who are dedicated right to their arts and really want to do this kind of work yet are discouraged um, yet feel that they can't make ends meet at least right not right now what would you say to them because uh, that's a that's a rough spot to be in what what kinds of things and what kinds of strategies um, did you employ to give you hope and and to keep you going and I'm, I'm gonna start with you Shannon who um... You know, I think like for me, whenever I fall out of uh, love for <laughs> what I'm doing or or like lose creativity or, you know, these things happen um, and in particular when we associate or um, link sort of our, our need to pay bills and, and capitalism comes into play um, and all of these these layers sort of can infect the work, right? Um, I, For me, it's sort of like getting back with people um, and, and making in community um, and having these conversations in community. And so like other people spark my creativity, other people lift me up. And, you know, when you're in space together making, um, you, you can't lose hope, right? Like it is a space that just, hope and creativity bloom and, and get conjured in these spaces. So anytime I'm down or running low or can't pay a bill, I'm like, I need to get people together right now. Like we must be in space making. Um, and, and I always leave with a better attitude and like more ideas and more connection. So I think if you're down, this is your moment to get people together and everybody gets lifted up. Wonderful. What would you say, Carla? I love that. <laughs> Having your people, your community mm -hmm. is so, so important. Um, for me, I would say there are absolutely things in the world that we need to do right now because those things cannot wait. And so if, if that's economic um, you know, and, and, and really actually chiefly, I, I'm thinking about the economics of, of, of being an artist. Um, if you've got to take that job in order to put food on your table until you're able, you know, one, don't ever stop making, don't ever stop believing that you've ceased to be an art, you know, don't believe that you've ceased to be an artist, I should say. Um, you know, um, I would say to Shannon's point, surround yourself with community who are in the same world um, so that you can lean on each other. Uh, find your groups, 
find your advocacy groups, find um, your, your artist groups. They are everywhere. We are abundant. And, um, and, and there is a role for everybody. Um, and I know for me, I had to pause. Like my journey as an artist is certainly not a linear one. And so I had to pause being a writer for a long time until I found the little ways that I could inject my art into my life um, and into and, and, and bring a bring a practice back in. Um, and so don't lose hope. Um, bring in your community. Always say what you are and who you are, because if you hide those things, then also people around you don't know how to show up for you. So if you hide those things about yourself um, and then an opportunity comes and it goes somewhere else or to someone else and you really wish that was your opportunity to take and you had, hadn't said anything, then, you know, that's an additional barrier. Don't ever be an, uh, a barrier to yourself. And also nobody, there's, there's no one person or no one group that knows it all. And I think I spent a lot of time in my life trying to be the expert and there's really no one solitary expert or authority. Um, walk in and be yourself. Walk in and be unapologetic about who you are. Um, because that also allows other people to disarm themselves and be who they are. Um, and, and there's a lot of beauty there. Just really beautiful. What you both have said. Um, I just want to just, kind of summarize it a little bit. Um, this idea around hope, really important. And, and hope is a discipline, right? It's a practice as well. We have to, we have to hold on to hope. I loved this piece around um, that you don't, you don't cease being an artist just because maybe you've had to put it on pause, right? And, and that so applies to me as a filmmaker, you know, for me to still claim being a filmmaker when I have a film, I have two films in production, that have, you know, yes. from my position, sort of been languishing. Um, I just mm. actually had a talk with someone about a film yesterday, though. So I thought, okay, I'm getting closer to, you know, finishing this this film that I've I've had in production for a few years. And I think it's hard. It's hard to keep that piece of your uh, heart, if you will, open to receive, right? And and to your point, to claim it. Uh, but really, so I, I loved everything that you both said, and we're going to make sure that we highlight some of this when we we um, uh, promote the uh, podcast. The, the last thing I think I want to ask you about is how have you changed? How is and how have you? How um, is your thinking about art and the kind of art you do? How has that changed in light of the racial reckoning? and in light of COVID over the last several years? And either one of you can start. Shannon, you wanna go? Yeah, I mean, it all changed everything. Um, it, God, in so many complicated uh, and 
eye-opening ways. Um, I think it's it was interesting to me um, because I'm in this realm of craftivism, right? There's so many people who come into this space who are coming in via craft, right? They've been crafters their whole life, and they're excited to see these mediums that they love being used in ways that um, give them voice or let them try out voices that they've never tried on before um, and say things they've never said before through art. Um, and, and it's really been fun to watch them like want to own the identity of craftivist. Um, but then when we start talking about activism, there's a lot of like, oh, no, 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 I'm not an activist. I'm a craftivist. And so like, it's been a lot of like a lot of work to sort of break that down and understand sort of the roots of that. But then also like, um, no, you don't get to call yourself a craftivist if you don't also think of yourself and do the work as an activist, because those two things Right. Like otherwise you're just a crafter, which is fine, but you don't get to have this title because being an activist means that you show up and that you do the work and that you do the work on yourself in order to do the, the work in community and to to not do harm. And so it's been interesting to um, particularly in the, the groups that are largely white women have these conversations around what does it mean to be an activist? What is it like? Why do you lean on craft? craftivism is something you're comfortable with, but activism is not because that's something like severe and angry. And, you know, they have these ideas of what activism is. Um, and then there's this sort of like softer identity that they can hold on to that feels more comfortable. Um, and so it's been a lot of challenging that and like really asking people to do the hard work in order to not um, show up in spaces where they're, they're claiming this identity and then, you know, doing harm um, or not doing anything, right, to, to the earlier conversation about things, you know, rolling back to even pre-George Floyd. Um, and I see that and I see that in the room and uh, the rooms that I'm in a lot. And so, you know, a lot of my work has has really transitioned from welcome. This is, you know, this is a new thing and we're going to do this together. And this is how you're going to start to build this identity and, and this like way of existing in the world. And then saying like, oh, no, no, now you have to do the things. And so let me help you and support you and move you along that journey. And so then a lot of my work has interestingly, like it leaves the craft and art world and goes into the sort of activist training world with these with these these folks who come in via craft. And so, I mean, I see it as a really positive gateway now, uh, but I also realize the responsibility that I have is much deeper and longer than um, sort of what we had originally thought, I think this movement was gonna be. Wonderful, thank you so much. Carla? I, I've, I've changed significantly, I think, um, since the person that I was before COVID. And I would say um, prior to the pandemic and, and prior to even starting my tenure at Free Street, I had spent my career really bending myself to what to an image that the folks that hired me or to, you know, 
the spaces that I was in required of me to be. Um, and I always felt inadequate. I, you know, I didn't have the right terminology. I, you know, um, you know, I always felt, I, I would call it the Hibara complex, which uh, Hibara is like a country girl uh, in Puerto Rico. And so I, you know, like I, I never felt like it was an easy fit. And so I would be in meetings and I would not be a hundred percent sure of myself because I hadn't memorized the data points in a very particular way, nor did I, you know, and, and if I tried to deliver them really in a, in a cadence and in a language that was really not mine, um, I did not see that as a reflection of the institution. I saw it as a reflection of me. And so, um, and so I, I came to Free Street in a very, like, what I would say is, you know, in a very, like, I came in a, in a very different box than the box I left in. <laughs> and, and, you know, I had to, I think to, to, to the pandemic's credit, I had to sit in my body a lot and I had to sit with myself a lot. And I also had to, um, you know, as a leader, even though it is not, you know, any one person's job to make everybody feel safe, there was a certain level of modeling that had to be done. But I would have to say, like, I received such an education on what it means to show up authentically as yourself in a workplace, um, setting boundaries, making time for rest, understanding all of the, that, that all of the things that are going around in, in my world are, you know, outside of my job is just as important and, and should yes, play a role in how I, we do the work. And, um, and none of those things were part of any part of my world before that, because it was the institution over the human. And so, um, and so now I, I, you know, I credit Free Street. I also credit AAC um, because I was going to their affinity spaces, to our affinity spaces, um, you know, throughout the pandemic and, and to have, you know, you know, a space where it was for us, by us, just us. Let's take off our armor and breathe and, and just say, you know, what it is that we're going through um, was critical to my healing and my own development as a human and as a leader. And so I bring all of that with me now, um, into this role and that, um, you know, and that, you know, professionalism is, um, is a construct, um, you know, um, that, um, it is okay to have spaces that are exclusively, for us, by us, and that we need those spaces as healing spaces, as organizing spaces, that we got us, that we are abundant in our skills and what we have. And, you know, and yes, we all have these incredible allies in our lives that also, um, you know, play a role. Um, but for me, um, this notion of, of I'm enough what I have is enough. The skills I have are enough. And I know what I have and I know what I don't have. 
And so as a leader, I know now how to build a team of folks that possess the things that I don't have. And that's not a bad on me. It's just that I know, I know what I got and I know what I don't have. So, so those are the things that, um, and I'm just wildly more confident uh, in the way I move about the world. Well, it sounds like it's been an, an incredible journey uh, for both of you. And when you think about what's, what's uh, fun, what's light, what's next? What do you think of? What's, for instance, next for, for the network? What's next for the network? For AAC? Mm-hmm. Well, we have, we started our, we have 12 affinity spaces, both by cultural strand and by work strand. And um, those um, have started and we, uh, we're doing them quarterly. So we've got a whole bunch of them happening in May. So um, I love that. And then we actually have our convening that will be happening in Chicago, uh, November 11th and 12th, which is Veterans Day weekend. So um, those are joyful spaces um, to be in when we're all together doing our thing. And, um, so for me, in terms of that work and the work of the network, those are two big things that I'm looking forward to, um, are continuing those spaces and then bringing all of our folks to Chicago so that they can see how, how wonderful our artist community is because we've just got it all. And, and I can't wait for folks to learn from all of us. And I just want to add that when you talked about all the changes that you've seen in yourself, those are things that then you can bring forward to other artists. And I assume that happens when you're in the network, mm. having the caucusing or affinity conversations. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, folks who are, you know, particularly those that are very, very early in their career, um, when we hear them really talking about the challenges that they're having, quite often a lot of what, you know, those of us who are kind of vets in the field really do is just affirm them and say, yes, you're going through this thing, but you need to know that you're enough. I think that is the quote, right? You are enough. You are absolutely enough. Um, Shannon, what's, what's fun and exciting coming down your, your path? I have two major joy spots right now. Um, I'm a teaching artist at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston um, through the summer. And working with these young people is like, I, I can't even describe it. Like it's sometimes I, I go in and out of working with young people just based on what's happening in the, in my world. Um, and every time I'm back working with them, I'm like, I need to do this every day. What am I doing? Like they, they just fill me with joy and hope and, you know, they, they, God, they, they're going to fix everything. I believe this. I don't want them to have to, but they will. Um, and the other joy spot is just writing this book. Like I'm, I'm almost done and it feels really exciting to have put so much into one spot that I just think is going to be such a phenomenal resource for craftivists and art, um, art activists, um, and just like really pushing the movement further and really thinking about the ways that um, change making can happen in like with the support of art and craft and artists. And when are we expecting the, well, so, you know, 2024, 25, <laughs> it's a process. It absolutely is. It's not a fast, not one. at all. Cause I too <laughs> have been working on a book with a, another friend and uh, you know, we pick up a little 
momentum and then it slides away. Why? Because <laughs> life gets in the way. Uh, these other things that, you know, are more pressing, but I am committed just as I know you are. That's true. To finishing the book and we're, we're going to get it done. It's true. I'm so close. <laughs> Carl, are you working on a book and you haven't said that? <laughs> Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Okay. But we want to know about it first when you when you do have one. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Breaking news. Thank you both so much. It's really been just delightful uh, having a chance to talk with both of you and to hear how you've been, you know, activist, how you've been artist, and uh, how the two really don't need to live in 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 sort of separate worlds. And in fact, we want them together, right, as as much as possible. Uh, we've been talking with Shannon Downey and Carla Estella Rivera. And um, we're, we're going to put all of their information on our, our um, promotional materials for this episode of Gathering Ground. And we invite you to check out their work, to check out um, the network if you need that kind of support, uh, to check out uh, Shannon's classes, because she does do classes online all the time. Uh, so make sure that you follow these two folks, because they're really interesting. They're really fun. And uh, you're gonna you're gonna want to keep them in your in your world. So for now, uh, I'm happy to have had you join us today. I'm Mary Morton. This has been another episode of Gathering Ground. Until next time.